Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to New Books in Music, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Kristen Turner, and today I'm talking to Maureen Mann about her new book from Duke University Press, Black Diamond Queens, African American Women and Rock and Roll, which was published in 2020. This book focuses on the contributions to rock and roll by black women from Big Mama Thornton to Tina Turner, as well as the erasure and marginalization of most of these women. Maya not only puts the women she writes about back into the narrative, she also considers how the racialized vocal timbre of black women's voices has shaped rock from the sound of the girl groups of the early 1960s to the background singers who created the sound of some of the most iconic tracks recorded by the bands of the British Invasion. Running throughout the book is a deep analysis of how the stereotypes about black women crashed into the lived experiences of her subjects, shaping their careers, their relationships, and their music. Thank you so much for being here. I'm so excited to talk to you today. Thank you so much for the invitation and also for that really generous introduction. Well, it's a really exciting book, and I thought so compassionate about your subjects, too. I really felt like everyone that you focused on, I somehow got to know, and, and I really appreciated that about the book. It's it's um, uh, it's it's a trenchant analysis, but it, it's also uh, a beautiful tribute to to the lives of these women and the work that they have done and are continuing to do um, in some cases. So, yeah, yeah, I appreciate that. I was trying very hard to learn about them. And as I delved into their stories, I really wanted other people to get access to the stories because they're to me, they were fascinating fascinating tales. Yes, absolutely fascinating women. And and maybe that's how you came to this subject. But I wonder if you could explain how a cultural anthropologist ended up uh, working in um, Black music and, and this particular subject. Sure. Well, my first research uh, as a cultural anthropologist was on African-American musicians. So that, that's been my, uh, my focus for my whole career. Um, my first book is on the Black Rock Coalition, which is an organization of African-American musicians. Uh, it was founded in 1985 in New York City, and it was founded around a problem that uh, the, the people uh, who were playing, these Black people who were playing rock were having, and that was basically being taken seriously as, as rock musicians. So they organized, got together, would have meetings, and really were talking about promoting the history of, of, of rock music to expose the, the African-American roots of the music while also supporting the, the musicians who were trying to get work, um, get their work out there at that time. So I had that interest and, and background in you know, what was going on in the world of black rock. And as I was trying to get started on a new project, I was talking with African-American women musicians who were contemporary musicians and what kinds of issues they were facing, um, how they were getting their music distributed. And we would always end up talking about the women who came before them. And we would talk about the fact that we didn't know so much about them. We were familiar with some of the artists but we didn't know about others. And it, that got me very curious. And so I, I basically went looking for these women and um, it led me to do a, a historical project instead of a more contemporary focused project. 
Um, you have several themes that really run through the entire book. And so I thought maybe we could start by addressing some of those. Um, and, and one of them is, uh, you know, clearly just reshaping the narrative of rock and roll to include these women. And um, I, I wonder, um, why was it important to you to put these women back into the narrative? What was, you know, what was your goal, I guess, in that doing that? Um, I think it came out of some frustration. Uh, you know, I, I, I was someone who grew up listening to rock music. When I started choosing music on my own, uh, very soon I, I got to that type of music. So by the time I was in late middle school and, and in high school, I was listening to rock. I was listening to rock radio stations. And the impression that I got growing up listening to those stations uh, in the late 70s and the early 80s was that Black people didn't have anything to do with, with rock music. And so that, you know, was a concern to me. Uh, especially as I started to learn about the history of the music and find out that, in fact, Af African-Americans were actually the, the creators of what became rock and roll uh, in, through their involvement in rhythm and blues, which got relabeled as rock and roll in the mid-1950s. So I think that erasure is problematic. So part of what I wanted to do was a kind of historical corrective to highlight not just the African-American presence, but also the presence of Black women specifically and to also try to understand why this erasure happened. So that is a, you know, a project of the book to uh, kind of have us rethink the narrative of rock and roll and then to talk about why we have to rethink it in the first place, sort of what has happened in the telling of this story that has put certain people on the perimeter and left other people at the center. Well, certainly so much of the book is about the kind of gatekeeping and who those gatekeepers are and why those gates are there and how, um, you know, these boundaries really hemmed in what some women could do and then really pushed other women out so that it made it difficult for them to really um, establish the kind of career they wanted. And I, um, I, you know, and that's kind of weird when you think about rock is supposed to be all about, you know, rebellion and, and getting rid of boundaries and that kind of stuff. So can you talk a little bit about, you know, what are these systemic forces that you have identified that really uh, created those boundaries and gave certain critics and, and um, you know, DJs and record executives, you know, gave them the power to make that decision about this is rock and this is not, and it doesn't seem to have a whole lot to do with what the music sounds like. <laughs> yes, it's, it's something that started at the very beginning of recording for African-Americans. So in 1920, we have the first record by an African-American uh, that gets circulated and is marketed to African-American audiences. Um, and that's Mamie Smith's Crazy Blues. And it was a big hit in 1920. Prior to that, the recording industry, which was, you know, just getting off the ground, the recording industry didn't really imagine that African-Americans were a viable market for records. And so they weren't paying any attention to them. But the Mamie Smith record, which, you know, just happened because of the pressure from or the insistence of um, a man who was managing her and just really wanted to get this song recorded 
a blues song by a black woman. Um, once it happened, they saw that there was a market. And so they started to uh, try to find other black women to say, make more blues records. And we had this boom in the early 1920s, um, which is known as the classic blues period. And at that time, they labeled this music as race music. So this was a way to, to mark off who the perceived audience was for the music and who the perceived performers were. And they were using the term race, uh, which at the time was a term that a lot of African-Americans used to refer to themselves. It was, it was not, it, it sounds maybe more offensive now than it did then. Um, but that idea of a separate and segregated category for African-American music and musicians has stayed with us. Uh, it stayed with us through the 20th century. And so in the late 1940s, the label race music uh, was changed to rhythm and blues, but it was still the category for any music recorded by an African-American except for, you know, something really, really mainstream pop, you would have a handful of African-Americans in that category. So from the very beginning, you have a segregated market and all of the decision-making is going along those segregated lines. And that just continues through the rock and roll era. So even though rock and roll is what something we can think of as a very miscegenated music, it's very mixed. We have musicians, it's a multiracial form and it has influences from Latin music, from country music, from rhythm and blues. Um, but it's, it's still marketed in a way that's really um, coming down on racial lines. Even, even the term rock and roll was developed to make rhythm and blues seem more enticing to young white teenage audiences. And so those ideas persisted and it was, uh, it made things easy. It made things legible. We sort of, you sort of, see someone, you know where to place them. And so I think um, it's true that the category, the genre category that people get placed in has a lot to do with their identity. There is some attention to what the music sounds like, but there's also a lot of focus on who the, who the artist is as an individual. And if you're not fitting into the idea or what came to be the idea of a rock artist, which by the late 1960s as a young white man, there's not a lot of room for you to maneuver. And so for African-American women, they were sort of doubly outside of what was understood to be the identity, the, the appropriate identity for a rock musician. As I read the book, I started wondering sort of what was at stake to be labeled a rock musician. In other words, I mean, this genre designation, as you were saying, is so decided by marketing considerations and this historical sort of long history in the music industry of looking at what a person looks like and putting them into a category um, so that it, it, it only has sometimes a tangential relationship to, to the actual sounds they're making. And it can also mean that certain sounds somebody wants to make are just not, you know, they can't even record it. Right. Right. Um, right. You know, is, does it come a point that, that I wondered if writing a book like that sort of as you have sort of reinscribed the idea of rock as being important as a designation, is there a way in which, maybe one way to, to deal with this problem is just to say, oh, genre designations hate those and, and try to think of other ways to kind of think about the narrative of popular music, or is that just sort of impossible to do because of the nature of the industry? 
You know, it's such an interesting idea because we are in a moment now where it seems like being genreless is more possible. Um, I think because of the way music circulates, you know, it's digital. It, we don't have the separate sections of the, the record store that, you know, I grew up going to. But there still seems to be, uh, there's a shorthand that genre allows us to use to talk about music. And um, I don't know how willing people are going to be to give that up. I think, you know, younger generations, people who are, you know, high school age, middle school age now who are listening to music, I don't think they focus on genre in the same way. So it may be that in, in time, it'll be less relevant. But I think historically, it does matter because there's a story that gets told about the history of rock and roll, and it gets told through the sort of these great figures, usually great men. And so I I did want to disrupt that story because uh, there are all of these great women who were also involved. So out of all the musicians that you study, I think probably Tina Turner has been the most successful at not just negotiating those gatekeeping, those boundaries um, in her in her career, but also maintaining her um, her legacy as a rock musician. Right. So there's some people you talk about that was were accepted as rock musicians, but then they've since been erased. But that's something that hasn't really happened with Tina Turner. Of course, there's a huge documentary just came out about her a few days ago. So can you talk about why she was more successful? than some other performers, do you think, um, in negotiating these issues? Yeah, I think there's several factors. And one thing that I think, well, the main thing that helps Tina Turner is her extraordinary talent. So we start with someone who has this really powerful stage presence and a really powerful voice and, a, and an incredible avil- ability to put these songs across. And it, it, ga- it gains her a fan base that isn't just the people out there, you know, listening to music and buying records, but it's also the musicians. So she's someone who a lot of musicians really deeply respected and, and actually were, were following and modeling some of their vocal style on. Um, This is especially true of the white British rock musicians of the 1960s. And so I think she had that advantage. um, And because of their interest in her, um, especially with the Rolling Stones, um, early on the Ike and Tina Turner Review um, was able to tour with the Stones. So they got exposed to uh, the the audience that was there, you know, to see the Rolling Stones so that that they were... um, they had a different kind of access to audiences than some of the other artists did. But I think the other thing with her is that she made a really concerted effort uh, to, to make a shift. She, uh, when she left Ike and was going to go solo, she made a few, you know, efforts to, she had uh, a couple of albums come out, um, but she was still trying to find her style. Uh, but eventually she meets up with Roger Davies, who's an Australian uh, manager, a music, you know, artist manager, and they come up with a plan that is really keenly focused on the rock market. And this was important because in the early 1980s, when, they, when they're doing this, the rock market is the big money market, and that's what she wanted to reach. So this is, 
you know, it's partly about aesthetics and her desire to leave rhythm and blues, which she was feeling was too sad. And she decided she wanted to sing rock because she just likes that sound and feel. And she talks about even, you know, when she was growing up, she liked the fast songs that she would hear by people like Laverne Baker. So the music, um, she recognized that the music that was going to be more viable on the charts was rock music and that she was going to, that that's what she really was, you know, leaning into. And um, it was hard for them to get that sort of through the gatekeepers. Um, she was already in her mid forties. So she was just not a good fit in terms of generation or gender or race for what was being sold to the rock market. But she was able to connect with musicians who were not based in the United States. Um, she's really working with a team of British musicians and the artists were doing uh, sort of experimentation with what gets called, you know, new wave, um, a lot of synthesizers. So she's mixing sounds and drawing on, you know, the heavy distorted guitars of rock, but also playing into what's getting very popular um, as far as new wave music. And so that's where she's able to kind of make a place for herself. And I think it's just a lot of things came together uh, in terms of getting the right song and making adjustments to the song so that it would have the kind of attitude and feel that felt like rock to her. Um, but that was also able to kind of cross over to pop audiences. So uh, the sort of rough uh, attack of her vocal style is still there, but it's, um, it's within a kind of pop framework that was really accessible in the, in the mid eighties. And it, it happened that one time. And then, you know, we, we didn't have a, a whole group of other black women artists sort of being able to follow behind her, but she was able to maintain, you know, her position over a few years, just with continuing to have hits, um, getting visibility by, you know, being in the Mad Max movie and also doing these tours where she becomes a stadium rock star. And, you know, that was her goal. She really wanted, she said, you know, I want to, play for crowds like the Rolling Stones play for. And she knew what that was because she had opened for those bands, but she, she wanted to be the, the center, uh, the center act. And she was able to achieve that. But um, I still think she doesn't get the full respect that she deserves as a, as a rock artist. She's sort of, because so much of her image, especially the image established when she was part of the Ike and Tina Turner review is a very sexualized image, it tends to, um, it can undercut her being taken seriously. And I think also because she's a vocalist and in the writing of rock history, there's the attention tends to be on guitarists and songwriters. Vocalists don't do quite as well in, in the histories. Well, bringing up, um, Turner's sort of sexualized image is a great way to sort of pivot to one of the other themes that runs through the book, which is the bind that black, black women find themselves in really in all entertainment genres, but certainly in rock, where on the one hand, you know, rock is about sex, whether it's implicit or explicit, it is about sex. But women, black women in particular, are so highly sexualized in these really negative, terrible stereotypes um, that, you know, you're, they're caught in this bind of not wanting to feed into that, 
but needing to also, you know, have some kind of sexual sexy image because that's what the music is about. And how do you negotiate the needs of respectability and and their own self-image and their own, you know, needs as a person, but also these career goals. Um, and and that's that really puts women in in a tough position. And uh, there, you address this with many of the subjects um, throughout the book, but maybe we can direct, I can direct your attention first to the brown sugar chapter, which I've never seen a chapter like that in a, in a book before, where, <laughs> which I loved because you, the three women that you talk about, um, you know, one reason you talk about them is that they're in relationships with very famous white uh, in most cases, <laughs> white rock, they all have right. a connection anyway to um, to Mick Jagger, um, and they have other kinds of relationships in, in some cases with other white musicians, whether sexual or not. And and you you really explore and dig into what happens when you're a black woman within this larger industry that sort of chews up women anyway. Um, right. But then they they are certainly in a special position as well. Can you talk a little bit about those women and sort of why you wanted to include the, the experiences of, of the women in Brown Sugar? Sure. So those women to me and, and the women I, I, I talk about in that chapter are um, – women who were sort of music adjacent and uh, to varying degrees actively involved in creating music. Uh, so I talk about Claudia Lanier, who was a background vocalist. She actually was an Iket, and then she was able to record a, a solo album, uh, which is a, a mix of rock and, and funk uh, that came out in the mid-70s. I talk about Marsha Hunt, who is a sort of renaissance woman who was an actress. Um, uh, she became a writer, wrote her memoirs, uh, also was a singer and recorded an album uh, also in the early 1970s. And then I'll talk about a woman named Devin Wilson who was not a performing artist. Uh, she's known as a groupie. And all of them were involved with Mick Jagger at different moments, as you, as you pointed out. Um, and they were also just involved in this rock community. And so I thought it was important to talk about them because I think when most of us envision the rock community, we don't envision a lot of black people there. And maybe we think there's some black guys there hanging around because we'll think about Jimi Hendrix or Sly Stone. So I felt it was important to acknowledge and talk about the black women who were in these uh, rock communities in New York City and in London and talk about their experiences because it, it's a way of countering um, an image that doesn't, an idea that black women didn't do that. And I think it also expands our idea of the kinds of experiences that African-American women have had and the kinds of things that African-American women are interested in, the kinds of music that African-American women might perform. So those were the things that I wanted to talk about, but I also wanted to address this, this, this problem of the highly sexualized image that um, I think black women everywhere in every you know realm have to deal with at some point and just certain certain kinds of stereotypes about black women. But in particular in the rock scene at the end of the 1960s and into the early 70s, there are these kind of uh, romanticized uh, ideas of black women's sexuality that get articulated through the song Brown Sugar, for example. So I talk about the Rolling Stones song Brown Sugar 
And then uh, I, and I talk about that song as a very flat representation of Black womanhood. And then I turn to a discussion of these three women and just trying to use their narratives and, you know, the discussion of their experiences to give a more uh, fully rounded view of African-American women's uh, experiences at that point in rock and roll history. So um, those three women, I think, um, you know, had, were, were mostly in the 70s, early 70s, when the women's movement had started. And that's a very different kind of world for women in general, and certainly for African-American women, than the early 60s, when you have someone like the Shirelles, for instance. And I think they're interesting... Um, I'd love to talk about them sort of in two ways. One is this issue of respectability, which they really had to negotiate as, you know, this as part of this early girls group, um, you know, craze that was part of rock in that period. But also, um, you talk about them as an example of some of your figures really are groundbreaking. They sort of shape the sound of rock in that in the time period in which they were working, and the Shirelles are one of those. So maybe we can think about them in two ways, both as that issue of respectability, but then also as groundbreaking as as uh, as women that um, other girl groups look to um, to uh, as models for how they're going to sound in this period. Yes, the the Shirelles proved the industry was wrong when it assumed that no one wanted to buy music by a group of of girl singers. That was the sort of conventional wisdom up to that point. There had been a, f- a couple of um, girl groups, uh, the Chantels and the Bobettes had released singles in the 1950s, and they had done okay on the rhythm and blues charts. They hadn't really crossed over to the pop charts, and so no one was really pursuing uh, girl groups. Um, it happened that the Shirelles, who grew up in Passaic, New Jersey, were going to an integrated school and they were uh, friendly with a girl whose mother just happened to be starting an independent record label. So it's a really bizarre coincidence. Uh, So we have this white Jewish African-American alliance that happens in the relationship that um, forms with Florence Greenberg, whose record label eventually is called Scepter Records and the Shirelles, uh, which is, you know, four young women, from Passaic, New Jersey, who uh, in 1960 record this song, um, the a, a great sort of like a rock and roll classic, uh, Will You Love Me Tomorrow, and really break open the possibility that, oh, we can have girl groups. They actually do sell. And the thing about that song is that it's a, it's a very... Um, it's sort of true to a teenage experience, but it is a song about reckoning with one's uh, sexuality. It's, it's about a girl trying to decide, you know, what she should do, how far she could go with a boy. So those are things that are controversial to talk about. And so I think it's, it's interesting that they have that subject matter in their song. That's, their, that's a, a big hit for them. It's circulating widely. I think it made it identifiable for teenagers, because those are things that they are dealing with. And even, you know, it's not being talked about a lot, but it's something that they're experiencing. But I think it also meant it was even more important for them to sort of manage their comportment, like how they presented themselves. Uh, And they also are very much in keeping with the style of how, um, you know, all performing artists looked at that time, you know, so you were wearing, you know, very nice clothes. It's almost like cocktail dresses, 
um, or maybe prom dresses in the case of, of teenagers, um, and being as sort of composed and self-possessed as possible. So, you know, you could move and you could dance, but you did so in a very kind of careful way so that it, there's nothing too suggestive happening. And I think uh, it's, 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 it's extraordinary that African-American women were modeling femininity at the, in the early 1960s, um, you know, the, that, these, that the Shirelles were doing that, but they had to do it in a, in a particular way. Um, and I think they, you know, they worked with the choreographer named Tolly Atkins, who had worked on the, the Chitlin circuit, and he sort of taught them some moves. And I think it's significant that a few years later, he gets hired by Motown to teach their artists, you know, how to, how to comport themselves on stage so they can do the kind of crossover that Barry Gordy was interested in. So I think the Shirelles are really important because they sort of they, they provide a template that other artists and, and, that, and producers see and, and can follow to sort of, you know, understand how can we market girl, you know, girl groups. Most of the girl groups are African-American. Um, how can we sell this kind of music uh, and cross it over? They, they provide answers to those questions. So I think Phil Spector and Barry Gordy were paying a lot of attention to what they were doing. And then uh, as I talk about in the book, the, the Beatles were also paying attention to the Shirelles um, because they were such a popular group. And at the time in the early 60s, the Beatles were a cover band. And so they had to play the songs that were the hits on the radio. And they started, they included Shirelles songs in their act. And they ultimately record a couple of Shirelles songs on their um, early albums. And so the Shirelles, the vocal style that they use and the way they were, you know, doing harmonies is something that influenced the Beatles. So I thought it was important to talk about the Shirelles because they don't get discussed a whole lot. Um, they just sort of are in the list of other girl groups. And I think a lot of the attention goes to the Supremes, who are, of course, a phenomenal group. But I don't think the Supremes would have been able to exist if the Shirelles hadn't come first and, and, and paved the way. One of your arguments is that it's the sound of African-American women singing that is fundamental to the sound of rock. And sort of as rock becomes wider looking to the audience, um, the those particularly the British invasion bands uh, are really looking for that sound and they get it from background singers. So you really really dig into the experience of background singers. You name a lot of background singers. You sort of explain how they worked. And I'd love for you to talk a bit about that as well. Just how, you know, what was important about to these white musicians that they wanted this black background singer, this African-American sound. And they're, they're very open about it. You know, they understand that it's racialized. There's no ducking it. They understand they need it. So can you talk about, uh, you know, about that aspect of, of rock music? I think part of it is that they were listening to this music. They were listening to the Shirelles. They were listening to the other girl groups. Often when we talk about the, the influences on, uh, on these uh, the white British bands, the focus is on black male musicians, especially on blues musicians. And that is absolutely true. They were an important influence, especially on the guitarists. Um, and I think they were listening to their vocal style, but, I think it's just um, 
I think it's important to recognize that the, the white British musicians were also listening very carefully to African-American women vocalists. Um, some of them are trying to model their vocal style on what they're doing. And maybe it's harder for us to recognize because you're hearing men kind of do women's vocal uh, voc- or vocals that women did. Um, but they were definitely paying attention. And one way you can trace it is just by the, the artists that they cover. So when, you know, when you're first starting out as a performer, you may choose to cover certain artists to mark your connections to them. And the early British bands were covering a lot of African-American women. So you have a group like the Animals covering a Nina Simone song. Um, And as I mentioned, the Beatles covering the Shirelles. Um, So a lot of the British groups were were listening to, to Black women in that way. And I think they they appreciated that sound. And so it, it was something that, that started to get added um, more towards the end of the, of the decade. Um, there are a couple of, icon- the most iconic song is probably Gimme Shelter, which uh, by the Rolling Stones, which features Mary Clayton. But even before that, you had Dusty Springfield working with Madeline Bell and Doris Troy, who were both African-American women who were living in London. And they were giving her, it was helping her have this sort of girl group sound. So there, um, there are many examples of this. I think what they were, were seeking is, is a, kind of, um, a kind of authenticity that they heard in these Black women's voices. So there's a kind of romantic racialism that's going on in um, feeling that those, these African-American voices kind of express an emotion and authenticity a connection, a connection to the body, a connection to sexuality, all of these things that were not perceived to be easily accessible to white performers, but they could sort of get to it through African-American musical sound. Um, I mean, in a way, that's the history of rock and roll. Uh, the, the availability of a kind of freedom and expressiveness in a music that's associated with people who were you know, really not free um, and so I think the other thing that's, um, the other reason that we might start to hear those voices at, at that point is that the music starts to get really loud. The instruments start to get really loud, um, two electric guitars, more and more distortion, more and more effects. And so a single vocalist has so much sound that, that he's competing with that I think there was a desire to sort of uh, flesh out the vocal tracks with more voices. And rather than doubling the male voice or tripling the male voice, um, there was something about having those, those women's voices that were audibly black that was really enticing. And then once a few people, a few artists did it, then it becomes the thing to do. And you start hearing this, and it not, it's not just on the British uh, recordings, but also it, it's a convention on American recordings. So from the late 60s into the 1970s, it's just so common to hear these trios. It's usually trios of African-American voices, and it's usually African-American women who are doing the singing. Did they get to go on tour with the musicians they were backing, or were these background singers basically just studio musicians? It's a mix. Uh, someone like Mary Clayton decided pretty early on that she didn't want to be on the road. So she was based in Los Angeles, and she um, was working very heavily in Los Angeles in the, in the studios there. 
uh, and she would help artists find women who were interested in going on tour. And then there are other artists like Vanetta Fields, who uh, was in the studio and was also on tour. So she toured uh, and her group, the Blackberries, uh, toured with both Humble Pie and Pink Floyd. So it, it just depended on what, you know, kind of what was needed, who was available. But one way or the other, there were some Black women doing background vocals. And, and usually it was Black women. There are cases, um, I think at one point Pink Floyd is, you know, touring and they have white women doing the vocals but they're doing them in a style that sounds like an African-American women's uh, vocal style. You know, it, it struck me that these studio musicians, um, though we're starting to learn some of their names through your work, and there's that great um, 20 Feet from Stardom um, documentary that came out, I don't know, a while ago now, I guess, <laughs> five or six years ago, but um they're sort of faceless studio musicians. And of course, there are, most of these studios in this period also had sort of faceless studio instrumentalists as well, many of whom were white. For instance, you know, of course, Muscle Shoals, all of those musicians were white. Everyone assumed they were black because they, that's what they thought they were hearing. Do you think there's a, um, a way in which uh, because they were usually taking African-American women on tour with them that they were... They, they wanted to make that um, sonic blackness also visible in, you know what I'm saying? Because there's this way in which, um, you know, Aretha Franklin was always touring with black musicians, but then she was recording with, you know, in, in certain parts of her career with all white studio musicians from Ushla Shoals. So you know, she was projecting blackness, but what people were hearing was also a black sound, but not coming from African-American instrumentals. Can you, I, I'm not articulating this question very well, but it just seems like there's this sort of disconnect, um, always this disconnect between what we think is authenticity, what's actually happening, who's actually making those sounds. And that the such it just really exposes the constructiveness of this idea of what what is black sound, what is white sound, you know, that kind of thing. Can you speak to that a little bit about how that fits into all of what you're talking about? Yeah, I mean, I think the the main thing to remember about authenticity is that it is always constructed, and it's it's very counterintuitive because the 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 word makes us think that there's this natural thing coming through that's an ex, a, a true expression or reflection of the depth and reality of whatever, you know, the, the person or the music or the sound. But in fact, it's something that we construct. Um, I think for the, for the British musicians, you know, they're coming from a, a completely different history and context. And so the first phase for them, I think, was being shocked when they got to the United States that people were even interested in hearing their version of rhythm and blues they thought we're going to the country where this was invented. They're going to know we're, you know, we're doing, you know, our best, but it may be not, it's not close to what the, the people who started this music are, are capable of. What they didn't realize was the extent to which segregation made that music inaccessible to white audiences. And so that the first hearing of a lot of this music for the mainstream of white Americans was coming from these white British musicians. So there's, they're just, they're finding themselves in this weird racial context in the United States. And I think for a lot of them, they had an investment in 
you know, wanting to recognize the African-American musicians that they're drawing from, even though they are very happy to be making a lot of money. Uh, they, they did want to, you know, try to bring some recognition. Um, and I think also, you know, with, with the women, I mean, one example I talk about in the book is with Humble Pie. I think they really enjoyed working with them, you know, as fellow artists. It was just something about, you know, getting into the studio and, you know, they'd play a couple of riffs or they'd play the song through and then these women would put vocals on it. And it was like they were able to, to bring the sound that these guys had in their head that the guys themselves couldn't produce vocally. So I think they, I think there's a genuine respect and you know desire to to work with these women because they appreciated the sound. Um, but it, you know it's something that we call African American sound, but you know or black sound. But yes, as you point out, it's something that anyone you know, in theory, anyone can learn. The irony is that it got learned so well by so many white people, or well enough that the the roots the blackness of it kind of went away but the fact that there were black people involved in this uh, gets easier and easier to forget as you see more and more white people producing the sound and you know whether it registers as quote unquote black sound for a lot of audience members is unclear to me i think it's it's just become you know it's become rock sound and where it comes from uh, and what it might mean in terms of authenticity. And, you know, those aren't things that a, a lot of listeners are really paying attention to. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think that people who do this for a living and musicians are very conscious of that and real aficionados become conscious of it. But the average listener, I don't think really thinks about that, at least the people I teach, <laughs> you know, they, right. you know, they may love music, but they just, they, they really resist, I think, trying to categorize sound in this way, even though it's all around them. And it does affect how, how they affect how they think about music. They don't necessarily want to um, become conscious of it because it makes them uncomfortable <laughs> to, to think about well, sound in a gendered or raced way. Yeah, there's that. And I, I think it's also, I'm sure you've come across this in teaching. There's also just um, a lack of awareness of where the music comes from. So I, I always, like every year, I have students tell me that they're surprised to know that, oh, jazz, that, that's the music that was started by African-Americans. Oh, rhythm and blues, rock and roll, that's African-American because of the way the music has transformed and who, and who plays it has transformed over the years. So I think it is important to acknowledge those roots. And, and that was, you know, it's definitely one of the things motivating me um, in doing the kind of research that I do that, that we, we don't want to lose sight of the fact uh, that this music, it came from somewhere. Now it's embraced all around the world, but it came from somewhere and, and it's important to acknowledge the people who created it. You uh, certainly make a strong case, not only in, as we're talking, but also in the book that um, the relationship between these background singers and the bands they worked with was usually very professional and that they really respected each other and that it was a collegial relationship where background singers had you know, often had real creative agency about what they were doing. They weren't just sort of handed a sheet and said, you know, sing these words. Um, but on the other hand, you know, they're, they're not making a whole lot of money and they're, you know, they are become sort of central to the sound of the music that is selling all this music, but 
they are left out of a lot of that. Do you think there is a, a sense of real exploitation that's going on at the same time that's sort of reinscribing, you know, centuries of exploitation of black women by white men? Or is that such a pessimistic reading of what's happening that's not really fair? I, it's, I think it's a, it's a challenging question to answer because I'm not sure that the women felt like they were being exploited. Um, I think they felt that they were making good money doing the sessions. And I think they were, you know, working within that context at that time where you were paid, you know, a certain rate for the, the day or for the number of hours you were working those, those were good jobs. Um, I think in a lot of cases, they were helping to create the song because, you know, sometimes there would be a written part for them. Um, but in a lot of cases, they were defining what their part would be. So they're helping to create the song, but they don't get songwriting credit. And so, you know, that is a concern. And it's a similar concern for some of the studio musicians who are writing, you know, figuring out a solo, you know, part that becomes, you know, an iconic part of the song, but they don't get writing credit. I think at that time, we're talking about the late 60s and the 1970s, those kinds of discussions really weren't happening in the studios. And there was just this idea that you're, you know, you're there for the session, you do what's needed for the session, and you're done. And the songwriters are the people who, you know, created the song, who brought the song in. So in the conversations that I had with um, background vocalists and what I've read them talk about, they haven't expressed it in those terms. And there's a lot of um, kind of fond memories of working with these musicians who they, they talk about them as just really appreciating their, their sound. Um, Gloria Jones, who is sung, sung background on numerous, numerous recordings, um, and including working with Ike and Tina Turner. She, so she was in the studio as an iCat. She didn't tour as an iCat. And she said, you know, the great thing about the British guys was they weren't afraid of our voices. Like when we were singing in other, uh, like in American studios, they would always be telling us, you know, turn it down. Your, your, your volume is too loud or turn down that sort of audible blackness. And what was exciting for her, and I think for the other uh, women who were doing background work, was when they worked with the British guys, that's what they wanted. They wanted that, you know, that gospel-infused sound, which is, you know, we get, we talk about as black sound or African-American vocal sound. They wanted it, and they wanted the volume. And so it was, it was a pleasure to, to work in those, in those settings. I think the thing that was frustrating for a lot of them is that they're all, these are amazing singers, Mary Clayton, Gloria Jones, Vanetta Fields, Clyde King. They couldn't get solo careers off the ground. I think that's where the frustration is, that they get sort of locked into being in the background, like that's the appropriate place for Black women. Being up front, which is what you are if you're a solo singer, there, there didn't seem to be a space for them in, in rock at that time. And I think that, that is a, that's the point where they'll, where they feel, you know, that's where the upset is, is, is focused, not so much on the studio situation. So the people that I, 
I'm sure were exploited, were the many African-American men and women whose music was covered in the 50s and early 60s by white musicians. I mean, Georgia Gibbs made like her whole career was doing nothing but covering Laverne Baker and, and people like that. And and Big Mama Thornton, who's the first figure in your book, right? She was the yeah. first person to record Hound Dog, much more famous from the Elvis version. Um, can you talk about that sort of whole, I mean, here's a whole sort of genre of music that was um, dedicated to covering um, other people's music without, you know, and very rarely, if ever, um, acknowledging that fact. And certainly the the African-American musicians never realized the kind of money out of it that the white musicians did. Can can you go over that history, which is sort of in the background of then everything that happens in rock afterwards? Yeah, the early 50s uh, and into the mid-50s, the rock and roll period, is a time when the major labels and the sort of mainstream of white pop is not wanting to really deal with this rhythm and blues phenomenon and certainly not wanting to record African-American artists. But they are recognizing that the songs are popular, that they have potential, and so they realize that they can get in on the market by having the white artists who are already signed to contracts with them do covers of the songs. And covers were a a kind of normal part of the recording industry. There was nothing pernicious about them. Um, You know, on on its face, it's just that the way covers worked in the 1950s was problematic because of the way the, what, the, the Black artists who are originating the songs aren't able to capitalize on all of the, the earnings that come from the recordings of these songs. Um, and this has to do with copyright law in the United States. The only people who make money from recording, you know, the, it's the songwriters. Uh, the, the performance of the song, um, you can make money on your record, but if someone copies your performance on a different record and you're not the songwriter, you won't make any money. And this is a problem that Laverne Baker faced. Um, as you mentioned, you know, Georgia Gibbs covering her songs. Georgia Gibbs was, and Patti Page were covering Laverne Baker, Ruth Brown, and Etta James, these African-American women who were putting out rhythm and blues music, you know, early rock and roll weren't able to get the distribution, weren't able to get the radio airplay because of the segregation of the airwaves and of the music market. Uh, but so these white women were able to get access. Uh, so it's, it, it was definitely an issue. It's an issue that African-American artists were upset about, but they really didn't have a lot of recourse to, you know, there wasn't much that they could do to change it because that's just how the industry worked. Um, with Big Mama Thornton, you know, her frustration was, uh, it was almost like a kind of double uh, exploitation because on the one hand, she recorded the song Hound Dog in 1953 for a black owned label. Uh, she felt like she never really got all of the money that she should have gotten from the success of that record in 1953. It was a number one R&B hit. She said, she always said that, you know, I only got $500. She got what she was paid for the session. She didn't see royalties um, because record labels could always say, well, we, we can't pay you royalties until we've paid off all of our costs and they can just, you know, you're at their mercy in terms of figuring out how much money they'd actually spent. 
and then another challenge for these artists is that they're not well-educated people. They're people who started really young in the business. Um, I think for anyone reading a recording contract, it's a challenge. If you're someone who didn't get past middle school, it's going to be really impossible to deal with all of the details of these, of these contracts. So there's that level of exploitation. And then a few years later, you know, Elvis Presley records his version of Hound Dog and gets all kinds of acclaim and money. It's his, actually Elvis Presley's biggest hit is Hound Dog. And he never mentions Big Mama's name. Uh, I feel fairly sure that he was aware of her version of the song. The version that he did is borrowing from a different group. Um, but her song was just so popular in the early 50s that many, many people were covering it. There were about 20 different versions of the song that were circulating. But Elvis Presley was such a rhythm and blues fan that I believe he probably had a copy of her record of Hound Dog and was aware of it. But that didn't matter because she wasn't the songwriter, uh, even though she maintained that she contributed some of the ideas that were in the song, she wasn't able to get songwriting credit. And so uh, all of the money and all of the acclaim went to Elvis Presley and she just, she gets, you know, pushed out of the story. So we're coming to the end of our time together. And maybe as a last question, I mean, there are so many figures in this book that um, probably most people don't know about, or maybe um, know very little other than a name. Can maybe we end with you telling us about one more person from the book that you would really like people to leave knowing about? I would love for people to know about Betty Davis. Uh, Betty Davis is, it, it's sort of a, a miracle if you haven't heard of her. And then when you start, when you find out about her and start listening to her, you'll, you will be amazed. Uh, she recorded or she released her first album in 1973. She was someone who was, uh, who grew up listening to the blues and who was very involved in the rock scene in the late 1960s. She was friends with Jimi Hendrix. She's very influenced by Sly Stone. And so she comes up with this really funky, hard record. Um, it's just simply titled Betty Davis. And she was someone who was exploring, um, you know, sexuality, her desires in a very forthright way, um, not, you know, worried about respectability politics at all, and was someone who um, also experimented with vocal sound. So she's, she was very, you know, adamant. She said, I'm not a soul singer. I don't. That's not what I do. I'm doing other things with my voice. So there's a kind of experimentalism with her. And she's just uh, a really, really fascinating figure and was, you know, known on the black uh, kind of alternative or black college circuit in the early 70s, but just wasn't able to get out to a broader audience because of these ideas about what kind of sound black women should have and what kind of music black audiences would listen to. And also the segregation that suggested that black artists couldn't cross over to white artists unless they had established themselves um, to black audiences first. So it made it really hard for her to get her music out to the rock community that I think would have really appreciated her. So um, I would recommend Betty Davis. And it's one of her song lyrics that I use for the title of my book. 
Thank you so much. This has been such an excellent talk, and I um, I hope that people will just run right out and buy your book after they've heard this interview because it's <laughs> such a fantastic book. Um, my name is Kristen Turner, and I've been talking to uh, Maureen Mann about her new book from Duke University Press, Black Diamond Queens, African American Women, and Rock and Roll. This is New Books and Music, a channel on the New Books Network. Thank you so much. <laughs>